0: As you guys know, this is a a large message that I've consolidated down to the best of my ability. It's a two-parter already, um, but the second part, we're going to do our best to... uh cover everything to the best of my ability so anyway to the best of my ability i'd like to say that just one more time um <laughs> but the pathway to idolatry right that's where we're coming from this is the the message the first message we did which was looking into the tribe of dan and um, what we're doing is we assess them and we kind of looked at their tra- trajectory that their life was taking sort of what their legacy was going to be and we covered two points Last week, we talked about first of all the gracious opportunity that was given to the Danites. They were blessed mightily. God had expectations of what it was they would achieve. Um, we looked at Jacob's prophecy over his son Dan, and we saw that it said this, Judges 49 16 Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So a judge is a leadership role, it's a, a very important role, an example of justice and godly character. But unfortunately, once they received their land, as opposed to being an example of faithfulness, an example, an example of faithfulness to God or faith in general, they were overwhelmed by their fears. They allowed the fears of the, of the, of the residents that lived there, the pagan population to overcome them, and ultimately what happened was they failed in their uh, desire or to their, their role to fulfill what God had given them. They were to come in, they were supposed to conquer and control it, but what they ended up doing is actually making concession. They made an agreement with the pagan people that were there and literally decided to take what God had given specifically for them and they decided they would share it with God's enemies. This was not God's plan. And then following their un, um, undesirable or unfaithful decision, Because of the decision that they made, it then made the land that they had undesirable to them, and they became dissatisfied. And so they looked at where they were, and they said, you know what, as opposed to fighting for what God has given us, what we will do is we will clearly look for uh, something else. Look for something new, because this is not good enough. Now, again, this was of their own making. Remember, God had given exactly what they were supposed to have. If they'd have done exactly what God said, he said he would deliver the land to them. They did not receive it because they did not follow him. And now they want to complain about their circumstance. Anybody can relate to this, right? There are times, sometimes we'll make our bed. And then when we're sitting in it, we're like, this bed's terrible. But unfortunately, we're the ones that made the bed. We're the ones that put ourselves in that situation. And what finds is sometimes God has us in situations for a purpose, Right? Ultimately, what does God want us to do? He wants us to fight for what is right. And what you have to realize is what is right is always what is godly. They were in a place where they could make it godly, and yet they chose something that was outside of God's will. They set their sights on land on the other side of the Jordan. And we know the picture in the Canaanite. Canaan was the promised land. That was on the on the west of the Jordan. That represented God's will. East of the Jordan represented outside of God's will. So they set their sights on a place outside of of God's will. And we know during this time the people were in a place where they were they were all desiring. Israel as a whole was desiring what was right in their own eyes. They weren't accountable to God. They weren't walking with God. They didn't have any kind of leadership. They basically were all just kind of ruling themselves based upon their lusts and their desires. So what we saw was at that place where they were, this is when the temptation came, because as they're going to look for something new, they go off and they find this guy named Micah. Micah is an idolater who lives in Ephraim, and Micah's is obviously a pretty crafty fella, because he had made himself a really cool uh, graven image. He had made himself a statue, and he had found and recruited this young man to come in and be his priest. He wanted to have somebody to have. Uh, to, he wanted to have a connection with God but a God of his own making, right? He wanted a God that fit his lifestyle as opposed to uh, 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 shaping his lifestyle to fit what God had intended for him. So we saw this idolatrous man, Micah, who had everything in place and all the things that he wanted. And then what happened was the Danites, as they came through, they stopped. I don't know if he had a Motel 6 or what was going on, but Micah had something where people were staying with him. And when they came and stayed, they were like, dude, check it out. That's a sweet little joint over there. They got that priest over there. He's got an ephod on, and check out that. So what they were like, they said, you know what? At this point in time, we don't have any indicators that the Danites were involved in, in idolatry necessarily. But what we do know now is that this temptation is placed before them because as they're going to this new land and they're worried about what's going to come, there's only five of these men. They're just spies. They said, well, let's just check with the, the priest and see what he says because, you know, we're going to do something that's could be a little sketchy. So let's get some advice. We want God on our side. So they go and they say, hey, will you talk to your God and will you give us your advice? And he says, hey, listen, you got, what you guys are doing, God's all about it. Yeah. So what happens is they receive and they hear to be outside of God's will is actually okay. Mm-hmm. And God's good with it. And so now this form of influence that they have in their life is unfortunately not godly. It is actually, uh, it's pagan. And we discuss the fact that what happens many times in life is the fact that many times we search for people that will affirm yeah. what we want. Right? People go and they look for churches. They look for places where they can go. And, you know, and they will have men or women of God that will affirm the path that they're already on. Like they're in a relationship with someone and they're, they're living in fornication or they're involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. And the person just goes, you know what? God loves you just exactly as you are. Just keep doing what you're doing. And you know what? Make sure you pay your tithes and we'll just keep on rolling, right? We'll just, everything's good. And so what we have is we have, unfortunately, a religious environment that unfortunately feeds into the carnality of Christians, that it's not about addressing the issues of the heart, it's not about using the Bible as a reflector of our morality, it's about simply affirming where people are. It's a humanistic perception or humanistic reality that, that's unfortunately take a hold of the church in this age. We call it the Laodicean church age because that's the way God defines it in the book of Revelation. And this would be the Laodicean church age. That does not mean that you and I have to be Laodiceans Amen. in this time. We can recognize where we are and we can choose to do what is what is right. So the Danites, unfortunately, fall prey to this temptation and they put their faith and trust in that situation or that, or that priest. And what we found is the fact that as we're traveling down this pathway to idolatry, well, first of all, there was the aspect of God giving a gracious gift, but then that temptation came. And then what now is, we're going to do today is we're going to look at the next two points. The next two points are this, pointing to the fact that Bottom line is, where am I? Here we go. A gracious opportunity given, then temptations presented, and then we see this. We'll see a lustful desire fulfilled and an identity lost in our message this morning. And what we've got to be cautious of and careful of is the fact that this battle that's taking place with them, we've got to be mindful of the fact that the things we see in these individuals, though these are thousands of years ago, they are still just people. They're human beings with the same... Desires and hopes and dreams and challenges that you and I face today. Though their environment was different, though the time was different, ultimately they're just human beings dealing with, with their flesh. And you and I every day, guess what? We're in the same, the same situation. So as we talk about the idolatrous aspect of this and it's very grand and the stories are kind of big, what you need to realize is I'm also many times talking about the human heart. So let's be careful not to remove ourselves from the situation and judge it from the outside. Let's try to involve ourselves in this and see maybe how this can impact us as well. Because, again, these lessons are for us to learn. So as we move into this second part of our message, it's called the pathway to idolatry. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we get to spend in your word. And, Lord, you know that I've prayed. Diligently, Lord, I've studied and I've read and I have, uh, Lord, consolidated and shortened and and, uh, all that's gone on to this week. Uh, Lord, thank you for what you've shown me. I am confident that you've spoken to me, Lord, and I am asking you that, Lord, now you would just uh, speak through me, that, Lord, I would not get in the way. Uh, The only hindrance to this message can be me. So, Lord, I do pray that you'd help me to get out of the way, that, Father, you might do great and mighty things in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, let your word speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, Joshua 10, or Joshua 19 verses 40 through 48. Just reviewing. Um, there'll be a map on the screen. You don't have it on your, and we're just basically looking at the parameters of their property. And it says, The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan according to their families. And the coast of their inheritance was Zorah and Eshdal and, and Ir-Shemesh and Shalabim, and Ajalon and Esha, uh, probably if you went back and recorded and listened to the way I used, way I said the, the, the names last week, they'd be completely different, <laughs> but I'm doing my best. And Elon and Timnathah, and Ekron, and Elkatah and Gibbethon and Balath, and Jehud, and Benabarak, and Gath Gathriman, and Mejarkon, and Raycon, um, with the border before Jaffa. And the coast of the children of Dan went out This is the key. Too little for them. Therefore, the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem and took it and smote it with the edge of the sword and possessed it and dwelt therein and called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their father. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Now, so when we left them, when we left the story, where we were at was the fact that they were regrouping. Okay, So the Danites had seen what they had seen. They'd gone up. They'd gotten the advice from the the priest. They'd gone up to Leshem, which is also called Laish. They'd seen a on a, a gregarian. Uh, agrarian people agrarian that's what we're looking for farmers people that were pretty much defenseless they saw this great piece of land and they said man this is awesome so they have headed back now to go back to the main people back in Dan and they've told them listen this is amazing not only we found an amazing place but we also we got some really good advice on the way up there so let's put together an army so they gather about 600 men and those men are all armed they're men of of valor and now they've now going to head back up into that same place so as they head back to Bashan now remember They know that this is outside of God's will. They know that God's intention was for them to be in Canaan, and yet this is outside of Canaan. So they would have relayed this to those 600 men, and those 600 men are signing off by agreeing to go fight. So the rest of the Danites are coming online. So we see this. Even though they know it's outside of God's will, they're willing to do it. Now what's also interesting, I did not mention this last week, is the precedence. No, Siri, you cannot help. Um, (laughs) But the precedence that was actually established back with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Okay? So recognize they were outside of God's will. And what we saw back in the, in the book of Joshua, and we saw in Exodus as well, was the fact is that not only did the Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh choose to be outside of God's will, but remember, the man that was the one they were to follow, the one who was to establish and show them how it was they were to go, Moses signed off on it. So he agreed with those two-and-a-half tribes that what they were doing was okay in God's eyes, okay? He said, hey, listen, and again, it was always from Moses. It wasn't from God, but he signed off on it. So there was a precedence that was established that the Danites could look at and go, this is outside of God's will, but I mean, hey, I mean, Reuben and Gad and a half-tribe of Nassar are outside, and Moses signed off on that, so why wouldn't Moses sign off on this? So the priest can't be far off. Of course, this is God's will. Look, We're doing the right thing. And so what we think is so many times we lose sight of the choices that we make because we think that they're just in a bubble, and it's not. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were not thinking about the Danites. They weren't thinking about the Israelites. They weren't thinking about the long-term impact of their their, rebellious choice. They were thinking of themselves. And see, when you and I live in a bubble and we think that my choice doesn't make any difference, we've got to remember that it does always make a difference. There are ripples of impact based upon the choices that we make. And when we step outside of God's will and we do things that are not right, though we think it's in a bubble and it's only about us because we're selfish by nature and we think that's the way the world works, that's not how it works. Our choices impact the people around us. And you know what? Sometimes generationally, but they were only thinking of themselves. And Moses was short-sighted when he agreed with that concept. So now we look at the Danites and it gives us even more understanding of why they chose to do what they did. Right, they're away from God. They're following their own flesh. They've got a precedence that's already been established. Moses signed off on it. The priest who looks like he's a, a godly guy—they're not following God. They're like, well, he said it was good as well. So what, let's go back and let's let's get this let's get this land. And so what's amazing is they've got this situation where literally they have. Um, this pagan priest who's willing to to direct them and they're literally choosing to follow and and listen to the advice of anyone that'll tell them what they want to hear because remember judges 17 6 said in those days right it says in those days there was no king in israel but every man did what was right in his own eyes so they're not accountable to god they're accountable to themselves this is where our world is right now. Many people that are not in church that do not, maybe they grew up in church, but they've walked away from him because, listen, they want to be accountable only to themselves. And no matter what we may want to choose to believe or not to believe, we're still all accountable to God. Yeah. hate to break it to you. So the Danites, armed with their new sense of what's godly, return to their people and they rally their army. They, they get all of these folks together and now they're going to go out and they're going to, they're going to do God's will. This is the way they're going to sell it to themselves, and this is the way they're going to sell it to to their brethren. And as they're heading back with this big bunch of soldiers, guess where they just happened to go? Motel 6. They're heading back to, to Micah's house. And as they swing back in to Micah's, this is where we're going to see a lustful desire fulfilled. Judges 18, verses 13 through 20. It says, And they passed thence unto Mount Ephraim, and came into the house of Micah. Remember, the only five have been there, There's 600 men that have never been there, so the five is who they're listening and following. Then answered the five that went out to spy out the country of Laish and saith unto their brethren, Do ye know that there is in these houses an ephod and a teraphim and graven image and a molten image? Now, therefore, consider what ye have to do. So the five turned to their compatriots and they said, Hey, fellas, we're stopping here because this is, you remember the little guy we told you about, with the guy that gave us the advice, where God is? This is the place. So we're going to go to see Micah and listen. Not only is this awesome, not only is Micah going to be hospitable to us and stuff like that, but there's a, there's a priest there, and he's got an ephod. An ephod of the priestly robes, right? So this dude, he's legit, man. This isn't just some schmo. This guy's got the robes. And not only that, but guess what? He's got a teraphim. Man, a teraphim, that's like an amulet, a type of, a, a type of, a, of an idol. Then he says, hey, guess what? They've got not only a teraphim, but they've also got a molten image, that's a graven image, or that's, a, that's a, a, a statue that's been made of metal, right? They've got a molten image. And then he goes on top of that, and he's got a graven image. That's a carved idol. So we've got every kind of I mean, this is like an idol superstore. This is awesome. <laughs> this, guys, this is amazing. We're on this thing. So, fellas, we're going to be stopping here for, for sure. Notice this. Remember God's command to them about about idols. This is what they should know, but they don't pay attention to it. Verse Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Specifically, notice this, verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Nothing. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that, notice the last two words, that hate me. God considers idolatry, hatred towards him. It is an adulterous act of of unfaithfulness. And yet these Danites aren't concerned about God's commands. It doesn't even cross their minds. For you see, they're looking for a God that fits their choices and their lifestyle. Instead of adapting their choices and lifestyle to fit the one true God. And so this is why there are so many religions in the world, okay? This is why people go out and they're just like trying on sneakers, right? They want to find the one that fits best. Is it Puma? Is it Adidas? Is it Nikes? Which one just sits my arch just right? I'm going to try them on until I find the one that really makes me feel good. And what do people do? They go and they search for the religion that fits their life and makes them feel good about where it is that they are. And boy, let me tell you, the devil will give them every opportunity to have find one that will fit them and keep them right in their fleshly mindset. Because ultimately, remember, it's all about selfishness. We ultimately are looking to fulfill ourselves. And humanity's natural selfishness literally brings people to a place where they say, Listen, I want a relationship with God, not that changes me, but that changes God to fit to fit me. And so it's on my terms, not on his. Crafting a God of their own imagination that conforms to the image of their choosing. And this is where the Danites are, right? That's what they were looking for, and that's what they found. And not only does he have idols, but he's also got a priest. Man, how wonderful is this? And guess what? The priest is on our side. He's supporting what it is that we're doing as we speak. So listen to the final sales pitch. As Remember, the 600 don't know nothing about nothing. They're just showing up. They're trusting the five. And the five are giving a sales pitch. Right? They're laying it out. Boob, fellas, this is where we want to be. And listen to how they close out their sales pitch. Verse 14 said, Now therefore consider what you have to do. Fellas, don't forget, we're going to war. We're going to risk our lives. If there's ever a time when we need God on our side, this is the time. And I'm telling you, this is the place we need to be. And so what happens is these men are selling false religion to their brethren. They're deceived And they are deceiving because the 600 don't have anybody to listen to except for these men. Notice 2 Timothy 3.13 says this, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, speaking of the coming where we are in our world today, deceiving and being deceived. These men have bought into the fact that this idolatry is proper and it's the best path for them to follow. And they've sold it to those 600. And guess what? Those 600 are going to buy into it. Recognize this. This is why knowledge and practical application of Scripture is so important. This is why you need to not, not only know the Word of God, but know how to apply the Word of God. Yes. Because if you do not understand it, listen, what will happen is you'll be deceived. Mm-hmm. And so God gives us knowledge of the Word of God, not only to empower us to individually protect our own hearts, but listen, to help other people. We're supposed to be a voice of truth. How do you overcome a lie? With the truth. But sadly, the 600 only have deceivers to listen to. Verse 15 says this, And they turned thitherward and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, even unto the house of Micah, and saluted him. Hey, Micah, how are you? And the 600 men appointed with their weapons of war, which were of the children of Dan, stood by the entering of the gate. So now Micah looks out, and he's like, Whoa, there was just five of you. There's 600, 600. Those guys have swords. and Golly, what is going on? And they're standing outside... And notice this, verse 17. And the five men that went to spy out the land that went up and came in hither and took the graven image and the ephod and the teraphim and the molten image. And the priest in the entering of the gate with the 600 men that were appointed with weapons of war. So they go, hey, come on outside. Okay. And these went into Micah's house and fetched the carved image and ephod and the teraphim and the molten image. Then said the priest unto them, what do ye? The priest is like, "Uh, uh, fellas, (laughs) what's going on? Uh, this, is, this is my joint. This, I, I'm Micah's guy, right? And so the five lead the priest out, and they have a little, a little explanation to him. Notice this. They verse 19, And they said unto him, Hold thy peace, lay thine hand upon thy mouth. Shh, 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 it's not time to talk, priest. Keep your, keep your mouth shut. And go with us. And it says, And be to us a father and a priest. Listen to this. Is it better for thee to be a priest unto the house of one man? or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel. What, you're going to have this little church? Dude, we're talking mega church, bub. Aren't you ready to step it up? It's time to get some authority. Oh, this sounds amazing. And what does the priest say? And the priest's heart was glad. He took up the ephod and the teraphim, from the graven image and went in the midst of the people. Hey, fellas, I'm in, you, I'm in with you guys. Let's go. Right? And while they're marching away, Micah with the priests and all of these things and they've got all the, all the stuff Micah gets notification of what's going on he sees them all walking off and he recognizes that the priest is gone and the guy's are like hey they're taking the graven image they're taking the priest and he's like what so he goes running out there to stop him. <laughs> chases down this giant horde of men and as he walks up and I'm imagining panting and puffing verse 20 they, they turn and they go what's your problem buddy and this is what he says and he said you have taken away my gods which I made and the priest and you are gone away and what have I more And what is this that they saying to me? What aileth thee? Why do you think I'm upset? Verse 25, and the children of Dan said unto him, let not thy voice be heard among us. Lest angry fellows, these men I'm standing with, run upon thee and thou lose thy life with the lives of thy household. Mike, if you know what's good for you, you need to shut your mouth. You need to turn around you need to walk away. Because guess what? Your life is this close to being taken. You need to walk away. And sure enough, he does. He turns and he walks away with his head down. Verse 26. And the children of Dan went their way, and, even, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back into his house. And they took the things which Micah had made and the priests which he had, and came into the Laish, that place Leshem and Laish, and unto a people that were a quiet and secure. And they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. They come in and slaughter everybody. Basically making human sacrifices to their new religion. Verse 28, And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Zidon, and they had no business in any man. And it says, And it was in the valley that lieth by Betharoth, and they built a city and dwelt therein. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born unto Israel, howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. Boy, oh boy, this is our new identity. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of of the land. And so, boy, they've decided who it is they're going to be. They've created their new identity, and they're all, they're all in. And it would be during these times of captivities that God would start to raise up Israelites. He would start to bring up people that were to bring their people to freedom. And there would be specific judges that God would use. Now, there was one that was very, perhaps the most famous or perhaps most infamous of the judges, and his name was Samson. And this brings us to our our fourth point, which is this, an identity lost. Do you remember what Jacob said about Dan? Okay, Remember this? He said in Genesis 49, 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Samson is the realization of that. Samson was a judge. He was the last judge that Israel actually would have. And then Jacob said this, also, continuation, recognize the first one is a statement of what God's expectation is. But this is kind of an evidence of what would happen in verse 17. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. So pointing to a destructive impact that Dan would ultimately have in the future, a poisoning that would cause men to fall back. Interestingly enough, when we look into Samson's story, what do we see? Very similar to the Danites. We saw a gracious blessing given to him. He was given supernatural strength, man. He was made like no other man and given a mandate to free his people. But then temptation presented itself. And it came in the form of an idol, which was women. And there was one specific woman who was seductive and deceptive, and her name was Delilah. And boy, she had his heart. And his job and role that God had given him was set aside so that he could fill his lustful desires. Do you see the pattern The same thing with the Danites, the same thing happening with them. Samson would fall prey to the deceitful to seduction, foregoing his godly calling to pursue his own lustful desires. And because of his failure and ultimate destruction, Israel's last judge would die, having never fulfilled what it was that God had called him to do. And wouldn't be for until David would take the throne some 70 years later, That what would happen is that the turmoil that was taking place where Israel was just always just caught up in all of this stuff, it started to actually come together. And then when David became king and they solidified as one body, then for about 10 years they flourished until until David got caught up and he lost sight of his role and he fell prey to an an idol which was a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And his choice that he made would cause him and cause the, ultimately, Israel to be broken. Solomon, who would be the son of Bathsheba and David, would take the role as king. And for, for a period of time, he would unite Israel. But then what would happen is he would get his eyes and his heart would be captured by idolatry through the women that he gave his heart to and they took a downward slide and he started to abuse the people and then he had a son named Rehoboam and Rehoboam took on his role as king and at this point in time Israel is really, really, really struggling the taxes have been incredibly high The, the just the, there's been a, just a heavy hand on the people and the people are miserable and Rehoboam goes to, to the group of the men his elders and he says hey, give me some advice what should I do? and he said, they say hey, you know what you should do? Let up on the people a little bit. You know, they're all, it's really, really a tense time right now. You need to let up. And he's like, okay. And then he goes to the younger man. Then he says, what do you think I should do, fellas? And they go, you know what? You need to put the screws on these people. Really bear down on them. Show them who's boss. And he's like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And that pressure causes Israel to, ba-bam, to break. Judah, two tribes go to the south. Those are going to be ruled by Rehoboam. And then the 10 northern tribes, they're going to break away. And there'll be a guy named Jeroboam who'll become the king of those. So now Israel has broken into two different entities. And what you find is Jeroboam, who's a uh, kind of an insecure person, Jeroboam starts to struggle with his own identity. And he says, you know what? I want to unite the northern tribes. And you know what? I've got a plan. And here we go in First Kings 12, verses 27 through 30. If this people go up to do sa- sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. So he's going to listen. The, the, the temple's still in Jerusalem, and he's worried about the people wanting to go worship in Jerusalem. It says, Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto the Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So listen, I want to keep my people under my control. Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two calves of gold. Notice this, the same thing that was in Exodus 23, that those calves of gold. And said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, I want you to notice this. He, Jeroboam is going to rewrite history right here. Okay? Now, they have heard the stories that they were delivered from Egypt by God. Notice what he says. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. I know you've heard the stories that it was, that it was God. It was actually these golden calves. This is what delivered us. So I'm going to rewrite history. The same thing's going on in our country right now. Yeah. Right? Verse 29. And he set the one in Bethel, which is down south, and he, put, and he, and he says, And the other put he in Dan, of all places to choose, some place who's already established for idolatry. And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. You see, the Danites never gave up on their idolatrous ways. And because of the spirit of rebellion that was there, Jeroboam knew exactly where one of those golden calves needed to go. He said, listen, man, they're already prepped and ready. And I told you last week that the decisions that they made would long-term have a far-reaching implication for all of Israel. Now, certainly, we can see that to be true even today. Because I can tell you right now, Israel is reeling and in the war that they're in because of the decisions that were made way back then. The principle of sowing and reaping, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Be not deceived, right? God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is the reality. And so what we find is the fact that here we have this these Danites, right? They're reaping. They're going to reap the wickedness that they have sown. And you see, during the tribulation, God will send a special group of Jewish followers. He's going to send these people to go bring the gospel to the world. And this shows you the long-lasting impact of the choice of the Danites. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 says this, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. I want you to pay attention to the wording. This says here that these people that are going to be sealed, these 144,000, they are servants of God, and it says that they are of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now let's read them of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Asher they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Naphtali they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Manasseh they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Simeon they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulun they were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000 in verse 3 it said These were the servants of God. That's how they're identified. Servants of God. Then, verse 4, right, identified them as having come from all, notice the wording, all the tribes of the children of Israel, all that God considers to be the children of Israel. But did you notice who's not in that list? The Danites. They're not listed. So as far as God's concerned, the servants of God, those that were taken from thee, the ones that he would consider to be the children of Israel, Dan, is not listed. In fact, according to God's wording, listen, they are not; they're no longer even recognized as a part of one of the tribes. You see, the tribe's decision, tribe of Dan's decision to br- embrace idolatry changed not only how God saw them, but listen, it also changed their identity with him. Literally removing them from the family of God. Why, why? Notice this. Let's go back to the prophecies that were made about Dan, and I'll tell you my theory. Genesis forty nine seventeen said, "Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heel, so that his rider shall fall backward." Then Moses said this. Deuteronomy thirty three twenty two, and of Dan he said, "Dan is a lion's whelp; he shall leap from Bashan." So Dan is described as both a serpent and as a lion. Now, who else in Scripture is described as a serpent and as a lion? The first one we can look at is the Lord. Notice what it says here in John 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus speaking himself, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we hear that and we go, how in the world is... Jesus relating himself to a serpent. What you've got to realize is that like in this moment, and just has taken place in Numbers 21, what's happened is that people have gone into rebellion. They've gone into fornication. They've done all these things they're not supposed to do. And God is bringing judgment by fiery serpents. God is going to judge. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge of this world. He's bringing judgment in that moment. But in the same moment, a fiery serpent is made and held up on a stick. And that, by looking at the serpent and putting faith in that, that would be the Redeemer. So, what's pictured in the serpent is the judge is also the redeemer. Yeah. Right? That's how he's pictured. And then we look here Jesus, not only represent, representing himself as a serpent, but notice Revelation 5.5 says this And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus Christ, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And so, here in, in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is described as a lion. Okay, so now we have an example where we see Dan described as a lion, a lion's whelp specifically, and we also see him described as a serpent that would cause men to, to fall back. So we see a parallel between Dan and Jesus. And then there's one more notable individual that I think you guys can probably guess that's also described as a serpent and as, as a lion. Satan throughout Scripture is described as a serpent, and then we also see him described as a lion. One of the most notable ones that we use on a regular basis is in 1 Peter five eight. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And there are lots of interesting references in Scripture, and that's the thing I had to cut down a lot of stuff. But there's a portion in Ezekiel chapter 19. And what's interesting in Ezekiel 19 is that there's there's it, it talks about Israel. And it's really, it's a lamentation of Israel. It's kind of talking about the sadness, the brokenness of Israel, where Israel has fallen into idolatry. It's become this, this awful version of what it was supposed to be. And it talks about her as a lioness when it references Israel. And it talks about that lioness raising up lions whelps, the exact same terminology for Dan. And it talks about them devouring men a destructive impact. It is talking about different kings that rose up in history, but guess what it's also pointing to? The tribulation. It's got a tribulation context, and it's pointing about a lion's whelp that would devour men. And Dan is recognized as a lion's whelp. Satan is a lion. A picture, right? A reference pointing to the tribulation. It describes wicked men that ultimately, and I believe, listen, that the tribe of Dan is going to be the origin of where the Antichrist will come from. Now, does the Bible specifically say that that's the tribe that he comes from? No, but there's a lot more indicators, and I'm going to show you a few more of those. So there will arise a man during the tribulation, and this man will come from the bloodline of Jacob. He is going to be an Israelite. He's going to be a Jew. But this man's not going to be, um, what's the word I would say, loyal to the bloodline that he comes from. His loyalty does not lie with God. His loyalty lies with the father of liars. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be influential. And when he comes on the scene and the world is just all in such a place of chaos and brokenness, he's going to be this voice of reason. And everyone's going to look to him and go, finally, finally we have a leader we can trust. And he's going to come with, boy, a level of deceit that no one can possibly imagine. And he's going to be just the absolute perfect fit. And you know what will happen? the world will start to unite under him. And they will say, you know what we need? We need one world government. And you know what we need? We need one world finance. You can see all of this right now working in our world as we speak right now. Why do you think the idea of having digital currency works so incredibly well for the biblical message? Because guess what? Digital currency is worldwide. There are no borders, right? It all becomes one. When a one world government, a one world religion, where the whole world starts to unify around this one individual. Man, oh man, he is the perfect person perfect fit. But you know what we're going to find out about him is he's both a serpent and he's a lion. He is a wicked, wicked man. And you know what? He is going to be the ultimate representation of idolatry because what he's going to do is he's going to profess himself to be the Messiah. At the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to walk into the city of Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem so important? Because all of human history hinges upon that specific city. Yep. Though there may be all the people in the world will come against it, that city will still stand, and Jerusalem will be sitting right there waiting for the Antichrist comes in power. He's going to place, make that the place where he's going to sit down upon a throne, and he's going to say, guess who I am? Yep. Boom, you've been waiting for the Messiah, and I'm here. And then once he's in place, he's going to say, you know what? And i got one more thing that I want to bring to the world, a golden idol. And this idol is going to be able to talk. Well, how cool that we have now AI technology. Yep. And boy, we can bring life to most anything. Isn't it amazing how all this stuff is falling into place? Listen to this in Revelation 13, verses 15 through 18. And he and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should, it should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that hath the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Listen to this. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. Okay, the number of man is the number six. And his number is six hundred threescore and six. Six, six. Six, And I'm going to just, a little side note, if you, take a, if you pay attention to the pride flag, have you ever counted how many colors are in the pride flag? Yep. There are six. Okay? The biblical rainbow has seven colors. Perfection. And yet, the one that you'll see always advertised has six because it is the number of a man. An adulteration of what was God's. Look, and that's exactly what this is, an adulteration of God's plan of who the real Messiah was. Now an adulteration shows up and professes himself to be that one. And so based upon the evidence in scripture, I believe that this man, the Antichrist, arose from the tribe of Dan, an idolatrous counterfeit of the judge of humanity. Remember, Jacob said that Dan would cause men to fall back. It is no coincidence that the Danites were called both a serpent and a lion, direct parallels to Christ and the Antichrist. And it is not random that they lost their identity as part of God's family because of their commitment to idolatry. And here comes the Antichrist with one final idol. Man, idolatry is the legacy of the tribe of Dan. Listen, idolatry, whether it is worship of something, someone, or ourselves, it is wrong, it is wicked, it is evil, and it stands in direct opposition to the worship of God. And so what we have to do is evaluate our hearts and lives and recognize the Id- idols that we have. Many times the biggest idol is the one that looks back at us in the mirror in the morning. Right. And we worship ourselves. Exodus, Jesus said, the, the Lord said this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, including you. The Bible says that men shall be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. doesn't say they don't love God. It just says they love pleasures more. And that's the problem. We're in a world right now that's got a hold of our hearts and idolatry is dangled around us all day long. What will we choose to worship? Listen, idolatry is sinful, it's destructive, and its impact is far-reaching. Not only in the life of the person that's, that's doing it, but also in the lives of those that are watching them. Why is hypocrisy so incredibly destructive? Because we're all looking for reasons to make idolatry okay in our lives. And if your life seems to be going okay and you've got some idolatry, well, just like Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Danites were like, well, look, they're doing it. They seem to be doing okay. Moses was good with them. Why not us? And it's those little areas of concession, those little things that we need not have in our lives. And what each one of those does is they draw our hearts away from the one that we're supposed to worship. And if we're not careful, it starts to build up. And eventually, guess what? Our hearts are turned away from God. Just like Solomon, who started out right. A picture of Jesus Christ for the first three and a half years. The back half of his life, guess what? Is destruction. Because it got a hold of his heart and it was wicked. Which do we want to be? Do we want to be one that worships God and honors the Lord? Or one that destroys and leaves a legacy of destruction? It's such a simple, simple thing, but yet it's so incredibly destructive. Today as believers, we stand at a fork in the road of our faith. Will we choose Christ or will we choose Antichrist? And see, we hear this and we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the Antichrist was during the tribulation. I thought that's not till he shows up. Okay, But let me tell you something the Bible tells us about our current times. 1 John 4.3. John tells us this. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Notice the wording. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Okay, this is the first century, guys, thousands of years ago. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is actively working as we speak. Mm -hmm. And every single day he's trying to get us to choose him over God. Temptation. Temptation to sinfulness. Listen, this is idolatry and it's rampant in our world today. It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's the everyday struggle of denying self and putting Christ before anything else. This is not about salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation, but it has everything to do with sanctification. What is God in our life? Is He is He priority? Is He our focus? Is He our drive? Is He our reason for living? Or is he just a part of our life? See, this is the problem that most Christians have. He's a compartmentalist piece of our life. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. Oh, oh and I'm a Christian. No, who we are in Christ should be the, device, should be the decider of who we are in every aspect of, our, of, of what kind of a husband. I'm a Christian husband. I'm a Christian neighbor. I'm a Christian worker. I'm a Christian that changes the world because of the cause of Christ. And our life reflects the light and the love of God to this broken world. The compartmentalization of our lives has caused such destruction and it's opened doors to so much idolatry. It's unbelievable. And we look at the world and it's easy to be, to be despondent, to be broken by what we see. But again, remember that you're here for a reason, right? Yes, the world is filled with idolatry. And listen, it's not going to get better. But you know what? That does not mean that we, are, that we are to be idolaters in the midst. We're to be a peculiar people. We're to rise above, not to be better than people, but to be a light. To point them to the truth and help them to realize that no matter how much idolatry you may chase, it'll never fulfill you. It'll always separate you from the Lord. And just like the Danites, we get to choose. We get to choose. Just like the Danites, our choices will have long-lasting impact. And our choices will live on after we do. And the very last question on your sheet, and if you don't come on Wednesday night and you can't come for whatever reason... At least do the last question. I don't want you to do them all, but if you just do the last question. The last question talks about when you leave this life, what do you want people to say about you? And I want you to write it in the form of a eulogy. If you could have a hope and a dream of what they would say, what will the legacy be that you you leave behind? See, the Danites, they left a legacy of ingratitude, lustfulness, and unfaithfulness to God question is, what will ours be? See, we get to decide. It's up to us. You're still here. So guess what? Start to create the legacy that you want to leave behind because good or bad, you're already doing it. Mm -hmm. Man, let's be mindful of idolatry because the pathway is slippery and it's easy to take. Boy, oh boy, it is destructive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing things you show us in scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the examples that we see and lessons we learn from people that lived thousands of years ago. And yet, Lord, boy, oh boy, are they applicable to our day and age now. Wow. Have we ever come so far? And God, there are people in this room today, and I know they're struggling with idolatry. And you know what I struggle with? Just all of us do at some level. Satan always wants to try to lure us away. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to recognize those idols in our lives. Help us to see them for what they are. They are not our friends. Lord, they are pathways to destruction. Help us to set our hearts and our lives on what matters upon you. The Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Thank you, Lord, for fighting for us. Thank you, Lord, for the purpose you've given us in this life, for giving us a good church, for giving us the word of God, for planting your spirit inside of us and surrounding us with people that are desiring, Lord, to grow and to learn together. I pray that you'd help this body of believers to minister to the world around us. Help us to, hope, to help and direct those that are broken, those that are lost, those that do not know you. God, I pray for us to be an influence in their lives. And for those that do know you, Lord, but they're just following religion, help their eyes to be opened that they might understand what it is to have a true relationship with you. God, you have so much for us in this life. And Lord, you have a purpose and a plan, just like you did with the Danites. Lord, help us not fall short of the purpose. Help us to fulfill it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Head still back, eyes still closed. Look, if you're here today, you're watching this online, you're listening recorded, but you ask yourself, where do I stand with God? Where's my relationship with God? There are lots of people in this world that would qualify themselves as being Christian. They would say, hey, I believe in God. And praise the Lord for that. But can I tell you this? The devil believes in God. The Bible says that the demons, the demonic forces, that they tremble in the presence of God. They have an emotional response to God. They know his word. They believe his word. But I can promise you, they're not going to heaven. They don't have a relationship with him. It's not about believing that God exists. It's about surrendering our heart to his. God's calling us. Jesus said, no one cometh to me, but the father draw him. And if you're listening today and you've heard this message and God's been drawing your heart, all you have to do is let go. Let go. The draw that he's got on your heart. He's trying to tell you that, listen, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want you to be mine. And it's not a matter of doing anything. There's no ceremony. There's no religious work. It's just surrender. Heart of faith. The Bible says, For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves us. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you've never called upon the Lord, I'm going to give you a chance today to call out to him. Again, it's not a religious thing. It's not even a, some kind of magic prayer. It's just a broken heart calling out to him. I'm going to lead you in prayer, but it's not your t- you're not talking to me. You're talking to God. If he's calling you, you know it, and all you're doing is responding. So their head's bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to have you repeat after me. Again, there's no magic in the words. God's listening to your heart. But in your heart and mind, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry for my sin. I believe that you love me in spite of myself and that you died for me on the cross thousands of years ago. God, I trust that you are the savior of the world and I put my faith in you. God, would you come into my heart? Would you save my soul? And Would you give me a home in heaven? Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.